0: Well, I, I look forward to your, your 50 questions. Uh, there will be about one question uh, per minute. Um, I'm sure that that would do plenty of justification for every question we have for the book of Revelation. But anybody who would like to join us at 4 o'clock today, we would love to have you. Every week that I'm preaching, we will meet at 4 o'clock on Zoom and to have these discussions regarding the text. But if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation And as you do, my my aim with this series, as I've stated numerous times previously, is that above everything else, um, is to focus on the, the, the big picture. The big picture of this oftentimes difficult book that God wins and Christ reigns. What I don't want to do is get lost in the details because anybody who's read this book realizes there are a lot of details. But with this big picture also comes the essential truth that Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, judgment is coming with him. And for the ones who remain faithful, for we who remain faithful in Christ to the end, church, this is really good news, that Christ is coming back as it means all the wrongs in this world are going to be made right. True justice will come. It will be served. But the reality is for for those who don't trust Jesus as their only hope in life and in death and subsequently don't remain faithful according to his word to the end, this isn't good news at all as they themselves will be the recipients of God's just judgment. All of this serving as as a reminder that there are are two kinds of people in the world. Those who are desiring and presently striving to faithfully follow Christ, and those who aren't. Two groups of people who, who are both active participants, whether we realize it or not, in an ongoing spiritual war. And what our common enemy wants us to do is to see the other as the enemy. He wants to divide us, divert our attention away from the gospel, away from gospel unity to other things. And anything he can use to make this happen, he will. Anything whether that's our our politics, whether that's a a pandemic, you name it. Anything he can do to divide and take our focus off of the gospel, he's going to do it. But, But church, when this happens, our common enemy is the one who actually wins. When we look at another image bearer of God, for example... And we see him or her as our primary enemy. We prove right then and there that we're the ones who have actually been deceived. We've been deceived into buying the lie of the serpent. And see, what we have within our text today is the beginning of a new pattern, a new cycle of sevens. Two two weeks ago, we looked at the seven seals and Last week, we looked at the seven trumpets, each displaying and with varying levels of clarity a cycle of ongoing and ever-intensifying judgments that have been taking place throughout the church age and will continue to take place until Christ returns. Now, the difference with today's pattern is it's not numbered like the previous two. The other two are easy to see as they came with those specific numbers. But we have seven listed here nonetheless. We have the dragon, we have the woman, the beast, the second beast, the 144,000, the three angelic messengers, and the son of man with his earthly harvest. Each of these characters Providing us with with a greater insight into the the key participants of the spiritual war that's presently raging and that we're a part of. Helping us to identify who our true enemy is, his tactics, what they are, what he desires, and ultimately to help us come out on the other side of this war victorious. But now, unlike previous weeks, we're we're only going to tackle two of the seven today. Today, it's too big of a chunk to try to tackle all seven at once. I can imagine the number of questions that will come out of just these two, much less if we try to do all all seven. So we're going to break these up over the next three weeks together. We're going to break these up um, and look at them then. But today, we're going to look at the dragon, and we're going to look at the woman, So let's get started in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven— Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, she, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So consider with me these six verses. Consider them as, as an opening Uh, introduction of sorts for each of the visions that are to come. We're told that of a pregnant woman, a pregnant woman crying out in the birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And then we're told of this great red dragon whose tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. And then this dragon Stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. But after she gives birth to a boy, we're told that the boy is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But then what are we told? Well, we're told that her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And then the woman fled. She takes off and she flees into the wilderness where God had prepared a place for her to be nourished or protected for 1,260 days or three and a half years. All of this bringing forth some natural questions. Like, who is this woman? Who is the dragon? Who is this child that is born and what is the place prepared by God in the wilderness? All of these being important questions to understanding the meaning behind our text today and the ones in the coming weeks. And to help us answer, we're actually going to start with the question of who is the child who was born here? Clearly, lots of Old Testament and New Testament imagery in all six of these verses. Imagery stemming from books such as Genesis and Isaiah and Micah and Matthew and others. Genesis 3.15 may very well come to mind, especially thinking about how God promised the, the serpent at the end of the fall, there in Genesis chapter 3, the time of the fall, that he put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the promise that was made to the serpent is the promise of an ongoing spiritual conflict between the offspring of Eve and that of Satan. The offspring of Eve referring to the offspring of, of God. Another reminder of the two types of people, the two offspring that we see within the world. Those who are the offspring of God and those who are the offspring of Satan. We're either one or other. There, there are other. No, there is no in between. You're either the offspring of God or the offspring of Satan. Now, in addition, when reading these six verses, you may think of the passages in Isaiah or in Micah that promise a child to be born, a a son to be given, a reminder of the nativity of sorts. Now, many of us turn to the book of Revelation for a nativity story, but a nativity story is actually what we have. And along those lines, notice in verse 4 how when this child was about to be born, this dragon was waiting to devour it. A reminder of Herod, his order in Matthew chapter 2 to to kill all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two and, and under. Lots and lots of scriptural imagery pointing us to who? To Jesus. Jesus is the child who was born. Looking specifically at verse 5, but notice what happens after he's born. He's not devoured. The dragon hovering over, waiting to devour this child, but it doesn't happen. The dragon using government leaders like Herod to, to do his bidding. Oh, But again, it doesn't happen. Rather, we immediately fast forward to the child being caught up to to God and to his throne. Which is referring to what? It's referring to the ascension of Christ after his life, after his death, burial, and resurrection. The one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron is, is sitting upon his heavenly throne. A picture of victory, a picture of triumph. Again, chapter 5, and the throne room of God with the lamb standing as though he was slain. But now look what follows in verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness. Which brings the question, okay, who is this woman? Which is really the most difficult of the questions, at least at first glance. And to get our answer, we'll, we'll need more than just these six verses. As these six verses naturally us to think about Eve. Naturally, even think us to think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. But when we look at verses 13 and through 17, we see how the dragon pursues the woman. A pursuit that takes place when? After Christ's ascension. And we're told that she's she's given eagles' wings that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, protected for a time. But even with this nourishment or protection, what's the dragon looking to do? He's looking to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of who? Of Jesus, which is telling us what about this woman? Well that while the Old Testament saints are are clearly in view, so are the New Testament saints clearly in view. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Referring to those who remain faithful in Christ to the end. Which is who? It's the church. The, the true church, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles throughout history, united in faith, a common faith, in Christ. So here's what we need to notice: When, when the dread dragon fails to devour Jesus, who does he then go after? He goes after the woman. He goes after the church. Can't defeat Jesus. OK, going after those who follow him instead. Reminiscent of Job in many ways. But think about all the ways that he's doing this today. Attacking and dividing and attempting to deceive the church. I log on to Twitter. Facebook. That's my first mistake. That I logged on anyway. And it's like a Christian MMA fight with this side versus that side slandering and backbiting and attacking one another, the world's watching and we're fighting and Satan's happy because the gospel is not what is being proclaimed. Which brings about the question then, who is this dragon? This probably being the most obvious of the answers, he's the serpent of old, the fallen angel we know as Satan the one who's been given the key to the bottomless pit. And along with this revelation comes a very important reminder. He not our neighbor is our chief enemy. As Ephesians 6:12 reminds us, our struggles in this life are not against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. A reminder, again, that a spiritual war is raging. And if we're not keenly aware of who our enemy is, church, then we will find ourselves fighting the wrong battles. We will find ourselves fighting the wrong enemy. And we will ultimately lose the war. We will not be a part of the victory side. We will be deceived. Now, notice how the number seven is used in reference to the dragon. There's other numbers, but notice that one. The number seven being a number of completeness. We've talked about it in other weeks. You're telling us he has extensive power. And the ability to manifest or make himself known in many different ways as he looks to devour and to destroy and to deceive the church. We're going to look at these closer in the coming weeks. But some of his primary means of deception and persecution being found in things like human forms of government, false teaching, other things as well. And again, we'll be looking at these more starting next week, but it's because of his overwhelming attempt to devour the church, the ever-intensifying persecution of the church. That's why the woman, then the church, flees into the wilderness where she goes to the place where God has prepared for her in which she is to be nourished for the 1,260 days. Because the dragon, why? Because the dragon looks to destroy her. Can't destroy Jesus. Again, he's coming after his church. Which brings about the fourth question. What is the place prepared by God in the wilderness? What is this place? As the wilderness seems to be an odd place to find protection, Well, again, consider the imagery of the wilderness found throughout Scripture. The wilderness being to be, appearing to be a place of, of great testing, but also a place of great protection. Just consider the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. On one hand, they're, they're free from Egypt's oppression. They're free from the idolatry that permeated throughout Egypt. They're no longer slaves. But on the other hand, the, the wilderness will test the genuineness of their faith. It will help to answer the oh-so-important question of where does their hope, where does their faith, where does their trust truly lie? Is it in the freedom that they have from from Egypt, boasting in their freedoms? Is it in the land itself of, all this is great. Look at what the Lord has given us. Is it in desiring to have a a comfortable life with fruit and honey and vegetables and everything there for them? Or is there delight, their trust in God himself, in God alone? The real question, is God enough for God's people? Friends, a question I believe it is very applicable for us today. Is God enough for God's people? See, notice how they, being I mean, here, they don't, the Israelites, they don't leave Egypt and arrive immediately in the promised land, do they? Nor do we come to faith or profess faith in Christ and immediately arrive in, in heaven. No, there, there's a wilderness journey that is to take place, a life of trials and tribulations. And some who, who claim to be God's children will not persevere. And will not remain faithful until the end. The wilderness time will prove along their journey that they're not among true Israel. They'll prove that they don't possess genuine faith. As we see doubt-filled questions like, Lord, have have you brought us out here to die? Like why? We would have been better off if we just stayed in, in Egypt and Egypt's where their heart would like to return are soon followed then by a return to idolatry and worship. That which they were called out of Egypt to flee, now their their hearts are still running back to. Proving a change of location is not enough to change someone's heart. All such questions and temptations we ourselves are all too familiar with in times of trial. Those moments when we're we're tempted to question the, The plans and even the goodness of God. Which then tempts us to do what? Take our eyes off of God and the promises that He has for us. To not trust in Him as our only hope in life and in death. To not see Christ as enough and to try to seek it in other means and other things. But it's not our only wilderness example. Jesus, on two different occasions, entered into the wilderness. First being his parents' flight to Egypt before Herod's edict to kill all the children and the boys two, two years and under, a time of protection. And the other, when Jesus himself was tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days, yet never giving in to Satan's temptation during this time of testing clinging to the word of God and the promises of God as his continued defense from the dragon. But now back to the question at hand. What is this place prepared by God in the wilderness? Well, it seems very reminiscent of what we hear in John chapter 14. You can turn there with me if you like. John chapter 14, give you a couple moments to do so. Think of a place, Think about a place prepared for us. John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, where Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, I don't know about you, but I've t- typically associated this verse and this place that's being prepared with a future home in, in heaven. I think of that song, like, what is it, the big, big house with lots and lots of room, a big, big yard where we can play football, a big, big table with lots and lots of food. If you didn't grow up in, like in the church in the 90s, then you probably don't know that song. If you did, then you're familiar with that song. But it's thinking about a heavenly home, a place where we will gather with God's people and be together, which appears to also have a, a strong connection to what we see here. But if we consider this passage in light of what we read in Revelation, of the church in the wilderness finding protection in the place God has prepared, I can't help but wonder if the, there's a, some correlation to the protection we who are sealed in Christ have now. The rest and peace we can experience now even in the midst of the most difficult of tribulations. That's what our heart's longing for, right? Longing for rest. like Anxious and weary and longing for rest in the midst of the trials and an already but not yet place of rest and security found in Christ for, for the faithful to help us endure faithfully to the end. That's what I think of when I think of these verses and this connection, which is especially important as we consider the days ahead and the trials that are to come and how our enemy is actively looking to devour us. That's the introduction. But now let's pick back up in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that the time, his time, is short. Now it's tempting to read this as the fall of Satan that took place somewhere between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. I'll, ad, I'll admit, that's, that's how I initially read it, how, how I initially understood it. And I'm not saying that in some parts it doesn't apply. But what does verse 10 tell us? And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Which leads to ask what I believe is an important question. When did the salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ come? When did that come? In Christ's life, death, burial, and ultimately the resurrection. See, up until this point, it appears, contrary to popular belief, that Satan still had the ability to present himself before the Lord in heaven. So it wasn't a spot where after whatever the fall that took place between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, that Satan was kicked out never to be able to come before the Lord again. No, actually from Scripture in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, we see with this attack upon Job, Satan coming before the presence of the Lord. And we see him doing so in a vision in Zechariah chapter 3 when Joshua is before the high priest and standing next to him is Satan, his accuser, accusing him. But when Jesus, verse 11, conquered him by his blood at the cross, what happened? The angel Michael serving as the authoritative representative of Christ, handed down the eviction notice, (laughs) the restraining order, you name it, he's kicked Satan out of heaven once and for all. Verse 8, he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for him in heaven. Two words sticking out to me here. He was defeated. I know that's three words, but the focus is the word defeated. An important word to remember because of the truth it conveys. Again, we who are in Christ fight a defeated enemy. And I stress, we who are in Christ fight a defeated enemy. We follow and serve the victor, which is the oh-so-important reminder that we mustn't let our enemy deceive us otherwise. More on that in a moment, but... Two is the word place again. Jesus preparing his faithful followers a place. But for Satan and subsequently those who align with him who are not followers of Christ, there is no place of protection to be found. No longer any place for them in heaven which we need to keep at the forefront of our mind as we pick up in verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two, two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time. And times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand, the sea. So when the, when the serpent, when the dragon failed to destroy Jesus, who did he go after? Him? The followers of Jesus. And how did he do it? Well, first, by means of deception. Remember verse 9 describing Satan as the deceiver of the whole world. Deception that comes in, in many manifestations from false teaching to idolatry, to even using our own sin to accuse us. I'm sure all of us have felt the dragon's fiery accusatory attacks at one time or another. You may be experiencing them right now. Look at your sin. How could God love you? How could God ever forgive you? There's no way God could forgive you of this sin that you have committed. Sins from our past haunting us, accusations of our sin that have a way of, of continuing to swim in our minds and embedding unbiblical nuggets of doubt about the extent of God's grace that can easily lead us to despair. It feels like an unrelenting attack. And when deceit and accusations aren't enough to defeat, what's he do? He resorts to Persecution would should tell us something about the faith of the persecuted church around the world? They're not an easily deceived people, clinging to the truth of God's Word in the face of unimaginable suffering. So many even today meeting in underground churches because of the persecution that they face. And I can't help but wonder if their faithfulness in such trials is at least in part Because Christianity has never been comfortable for them. It's never been a religion that's catered to comfort and convenience as it is for so many of us in the Western world. Where the slightest inconvenience is is enough to keep some from faithfully following Christ and obeying his word. Where, Where difficult and even not so difficult trials cause people to simply abandon the faith that they once claimed to possess. And sen- essentially, when, when God doesn't live up to their expectations and their liking, they're like, I don't believe in God anymore. Well, it's not that they don't just believe in God, they don't believe in the God that they have in their own minds, and they don't believe in the God of the scripture. And here you have churches in certain parts of the world today walking. literally walking each way under the cover of darkness just so they can gather together for multiple hours. Walking hours to do this, whispering as they sing so not to be heard, listening intently to the gospel read and taught even though a complete Bible may not even be in their possession. Just maybe individual books. Books praying for and praying with one another, meeting one another's needs, all under the threat of violent persecution. And this leads to the ultimate question of how, how do the truly faithful remain faithful to the end in such circumstances? What will the remnant that comes out of our trials actually look like? What, what will keep us faithful until the end? Well, that's what we're, we're told God does for his church in the midst of tribulation. He, he sweeps in on eagle's wings, sweeping her up to, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time. That time being for as long as we're in this wilderness journey, which is until Christ returns. Until then, he will protect and provide for his people. Not all of our comforts, not all of our desires, but all of our needs. Just like he did for the Israelites, providing manna in the wilderness. But Now the question here is, what does our manna, what does our nourishment look like? It's Jesus himself. Jesus, the the bread of life. As he tells the crowd gathered in John chapter 6, verse 32, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The crowd responds and they say, sir, give us this bread always. That's the bread we want. And Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, does this mean that we won't face persecution? Does this mean we won't face great tribulations on the account of our faithfulness to God in the days ahead? No. The dragon will continue to pursue us like Pharaoh's army chasing the Israelites. The dragon may even slay us as he has so many of the martyrs who have gone before us. But just as God parted the waters of the Red Sea to protect his people and to bring judgment upon the wicked, Christ serves as our protector. And that we're promised. We're promised all whom the Father has given to the Son will come to him. And as Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. Meaning we who are in Christ will be held secure to the end. We will be raised up with Christ on the last day. We will be presented holy and blameless before the Father if, if we continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Which means we can't fall to the deception of our enemy. We can't lose sight of, our true, of who our true enemy is. And we must keep our eyes fixed upon Christ until the end. Understanding that our faithfulness to him is made possible and only possible because of his faithfulness to us. Oh, church, such good news that we are able to remain faithful in Christ to the end because he is faithful to us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we realize the road before us is is only going to grow more and more difficult in the days ahead. We are tempted and will continue to be tempted to abandon the journey. To look for easier paths. To be deceived into believing that those paths are the right paths. Satan looking to deceive us in every way that he can. Looking to divide us and silence our witness. Help us, O Lord, to remain faithful to the end. Not by our strength, but yours. May our faithfulness to you be rooted in your great faithfulness to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand with me? And let's sing together of the great faithfulness.